Hello. Before we get down to cinema, I would like to draw your attention to our Patreon. Regular listeners will know that these podcasts are supported by Quad, our home cinema in Derby, UK. But as Quad is a charity, we want to make Cinelet as self-sustainable as possible. So, to that end, we have set up a two-tier way in which you can support Cinelit. For our 35mm Cinefans, you'll get a bonus additional episode each month where we will be deep diving into an area of cinema that will be exclusive to Patreon subscribers for at least six months before it arrives like a late dinner guest on the regular feed. Plus, you get the episodes a week in advance of the main feed release. But if you want to support us and don't feel that pressing need to have the additional podcast each month, but still want that warm, satisfying feeling of being part of the Cinelit success story then you can become an 8mm Cinefan, where you can donate and get our heartfelt thanks. Head over to the Patreon page and subscribe if you can. However, we know that times are hard at the moment, so please do not feel you need to subscribe if you are not able. We'll still be putting out new, free-to-listen-to episodes on a regular basis throughout the year. Now let's get back to your regular scheduled broadcast. Okay, welcome to another heartwarming episode of Cinelit. Today we are casting our gaze back to a series of films made over a 20-year period from 1959 to 1979, a period in which Francois Truffaut chronicled the life of Antoine Doinel, from a troubled 13-year-old in The 400 Blows to a short film and three further features, rounding off the cycle in 1979's Love on the Run. I'm your host, Adam Marsh, and I am joined as ever by Cinelit's resident expert, Daryl Buxton. How are you, Daryl? I'm fine, thanks, Adam. Uh, yeah, looking forward to talking about uh, Truffaut and French New Wave. And um, I've got to say, um, uh, of these five films, I think three of them were new to me. So uh, the, the, the Dwanel series is one that I've had to sort of catch up with a little bit for this podcast, you know. Uh, I knew... Uh, 400 blows and the the short film but uh, the the three later movies um have been a bit of a revelation for me so uh yeah yeah similar, similar to me as well um but today we are also joined by our special guest multidisciplinary artist and photographer and also derby film festival young programmer camille relay how are you camille um hi adam i'm really good thank you so nice to be here and um, yeah, like Daryl, uh, I knew 400 blows from when I was a little kid, but um, the, for the movie was quite a discovery for me, um, a nice discovery. Yeah, I mean, I'd be lying if I said that there wasn't an ulterior motive behind me suggesting this podcast. Um, basically, I bought the box set last year and hadn't gotten around to watching them all. So I thought, well, if I say I'm going to do a podcast on it, that'll kick me in the ass to try and get me to watch them. And it did, and here we are. Um, but, you know, there is other reasons. We The, the, the BFI are going to be doing a uh, full retrospective of Francois Truffaut's work in January and February at the South Bank. And they're also re-releasing the 400 Blows and a new 4K restoration. And they're also giving a re-release to Jules Gym. Uh, and making all all of a lot of Truffaut films available for cinemas across the country. So, in January and February time, you might see quite a lot of uh, Truffaut films in your regional cinemas and at the, at the South Bank as well. Yeah, but like I said, I like you guys. I'd seen the Four Hundred Blows, and that was it. Really, I hadn't seen the others. So, uh, again, a revelation to me. Yeah, yeah, a real revelation to me. I, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed them more than I thought I was going to do. Uh, I'll be honest, because. Um, I don't know. Maybe, 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 maybe we should start with the four hundred blows. But it felt like the four hundred blows, whilst being the the five star legendary, spoken about top one hundred films of all time style movie, didn't really feel like it was part of the series in some ways to me. I think that one is the special one, the one that stands out the most. It's his first baby, basically. It's uh, it's his first feature. Um, it was supposed to be a short originally, I think. And then he got some financing from his um, father-in-law and uh, with the help of a couple of other artists and writers, he was able to uh, turn it into um, a feature film. And I think that one is the, the the one at the core of everything, really. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's a masterpiece, really. I mean, the, the sort of like loose vignette style uh, structure works really well for it and, and, and that snapshots of childhood. Uh, work really well in building your sympathy for the character but also like seeing 
not not seeing one side of childhood. I think is is many sides of childhood are depicted in this in this movie. What you said you'd seen it before Daryl as well at this one. Yes, many, many years ago, and uh, but it was nice to catch up with it again. And uh, I think in terms of the series, it, it it's a, and in terms of Truffaut's career, it's a film that sort of manages to have its cake and eat it in a way, because it is a standalone classic. It's a great movie in its own right. But as part of this series, it works as well. And I, and I think the series sort of lives up to it. This this may well be the best of, of the five films um, all these years on. Um, that's that's debatable, I think, though, because the the other the other four are, in terms of quality, they're 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 up there. You know, they they it, the five films or the four four and a half films or whatever you want to call them do make up part of one of cinema's all time great series. I think. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely looms large over the whole series, and in some ways informs. The rest of him, because he is forever dealing with his 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 reactions to situations in the later films are all really stemming from his experiences in the four hundred blows. So in that way, it's very much it's very much connected to the to, to the others. But I always felt like I felt, I felt the other ones were much more uh, were, were less loose. Apart from maybe Love on the Run, the rest felt more like coherent feature film stories with a clear storyline running through them. Whereas 400 Blows, it has got that snapshot vignette style uh, about it, which maybe doesn't carry over into the others. I, I agree with a lot of that, yes. Um, uh, I, I think um, the other thing to look at with the film is um, its influences and also the, the position it sat in in world cinema at the time. And what we've got here, of course, is the, the early years, the birth of uh, the, the, the French uh, new wave, the Nouvelle Vague. And, uh, and that's happening concurrently with the, the rise of the, the British kitchen sink movie. And although there's, there, there's not a great deal of overlap between those, those two schools of cinema, I think this is one movie that does sort of combine the two. Um, it almost plays like a French kitchen sink movie at times. Yeah, yeah, no, it absolutely does. It, it, it has that grit about it, but not not too much grit. That it's like a horrible, heart heartbreaking story of a childhood. But it's got enough of a grit to feel that you know that you can still enjoy the escapades of Antoine Duanel, age thirteen, as well. It's got the Tom Sawyer element about it, I guess, in some ways. Camille, just 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 speaking as someone someone who grew up in France, what's the kind of reaction to Truffaut in France um, now? I guess and Obviously, we we speak to him as as a legend of of, of world cinema, but he, he's a French filmmaker ultimately. Oh yeah, I think he's still um, very much loved and admired. Uh, I think he's one of the um, cinematographer, movie maker, and art critic who's still revisited over and over. Um, it's kind of like yeah, a French fascination really, as like one of the founding father of the French New Wave and how he managed to pass from um, film critic to them becoming realizator is just something um, I think quite incredible still. Mm. I mean, yeah, to, keeping talking about cinema and what he liked and really pinpointing what he thought was wrong and then to take the step over and be like, okay, well, I'm going to make something, then I'm going to make something that will change. And also the fact that he wasn't working alone, that it was... Like ultimately, it's like yeah, there is the artist, there is the realizer, but he was always working in collaboration and talking with other fellow filmmaker and art critics. So I think that's really important, and maybe something we don't see as much now. Yeah, the the, the idea that it's a movement, a group of people wanting to make a difference and change change cinema. I guess that then the 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 youth and the arrogance that think that they they can change cinema that's always got to be there um whether people like it or not to get things changed and and, and they certainly had that they they knew what they they thought cinema should be and the, the they then put their put their money on the table and went okay i'm going to make the films and show you what cinema should be and him alongside a lot of those the french new wave directors revolutionized cinema yeah, I mean, it's it really it really is um, how they managed to make that cut as well, that uh, clear break from classic French cinema where everything was 
um, perfectly controlled in studio sets, very uh, romanticized in a way, and just showing you the first few panels uh, in in the 400 rows of uh, the, the the actual grittiness of Paris, I think was already groundbreaking in a way, um, just because that's not how people like to see Paris or like to imagine Paris. No, no. So it was definitely building on that sort of Italian um, neorealism as well. You know, where we just went out and filmed. Uh, and, and yes, it was a bombsite because it was a bombsite. I think it was a similar thing with, with the French New Wave. They went out and filmed in the streets of, of Paris because that's that's what that was real life to them. You've taken the words out of my mouth there, Adam. Uh, I was going to mention the the neorealist sort of influence mm. on on this, and and also I think this is one thing that ties in the um, the French New Wave with the British School. What was happening at uh, Woodfall and what was happening with people like Lindsay Anderson elsewhere. Uh, I think different though those films were from the French New Wave. I think the Italian neorealist thing from 10, 15 years earlier was was still an influence on both French and British filmmakers. And I think that sort of ties the two schools together, really. Yeah, it it, it does have those elements of um, filming on the streets, filming as things happened. One, one thing I, I pick up from uh, 400 Blows as well is right from the off, you've got Truffaut declaring his love of cinema and... Um, but he does it in an interesting way in this film. There's something that he does later in the series where he's actually filming cinema marquees and he's filming the Musée de Cinema and things like that. Um, here, you just, just in the course of the action, if you can call it action, his camera manages to pick up just in the corner of a frame every now and then, the, the edge of a, a cinema or the frontage of a cinema, and it's, it's there and it's gone, you know, and, but it happens so often throughout the film that it's almost like he's trying to suggest that there's this pervading air of cinema across Paris, you know, that, that this is the city of cinema. But he doesn't want to be blatant about it. He just wants it in the corner of the frame every now and then. But it's often enough just to keep that thing going. And then, of course, he expands on that later in the series and brings his love of cinema into, into things more. But I think it's handled in a very subtle sort of way here. It could well be that the locations he loves happen to have cinemas on the corner, you know, and he just happens to catch them in camera. But uh, but it does suggest to me that yeah, he's he's trying to say Paris is a city that's in love with cinema. Yeah, I, that that comes across through the whole series definitely. Um, obviously, with it acting as a cipher, Antoine Donnell acting as a cipher for for Truffaut himself. Truffaut's love of cinema is, is all pervasive anyway, so. You've sort of touched on there, Adam, the, the sort of autobiographical aspects of this first film and then ultimately the series. And again, I, I don't know if Camille can, can fill us in on, on any more of this, how, how this is regarded in, in terms of Truffaut's career. These, these films appear to be about him. There's always been um, that sort of conflict of interest with him admitting that it was um, semi-autobiographical and it obviously created conflicts then with his parents and then being incredibly angry at him after uh, the coming uh, the, the screening of 400 blows because um, they thought that it was the, the, the whole movie was a, a dig at them basically and how they uh, treated him uh, educated him and it's still there but uh, one thing that I uh, I learned while I was doing research on the movie as well is that um, for 400 blows um, he was closely working with the writer um, Marcel Moussi, uh, who worked with him on the movie and was um, an ex-school um, teacher. So um, he actually gave a lot of credit to Marcel uh, and said that without him, the movie wouldn't have been the same because um, as much as he could fill in on the experience of being Antoine and being the little boy who didn't like school and misbehaved, the experience of Marcel Moussi as the teacher also filled um, filled the gaps and gave a different perspective um, on the different scenes. I think that comes in through the rest of the films as well. It's not just his vision of, of, of whatever story he's telling. There's always writers on board. There's other... I mean, I think Love on the Run, but doesn't the actress who played Colette collaborate on the script for that as well? So you have you have much more of a sort of like collaborative aspects and the writing of these things so I think the self when people talk about it it's sort of 
autobiographical. That's kind of right in this case. Normally, it's, it's a loose way of getting out of being in trouble with your parents. But it, it, in this case, it kind of is. It's kind of like he's bringing other experiences to create the best piece of work that's most true to the experience, I guess, rather than true to his real life. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting that, um, I mean, Truffaut's often cited as being one of the architects, if not the key architect of uh, the auteur theory in terms of film criticism. And and yet we're here talking about the collaborative aspects of, uh, of, of this series and of his films in general. Um, and I think I think that shows a point about the auteur theory that's that's often misunderstood by people that that try to sort of negate that or deny it it's not just about one filmmaker's vision as such um it's it's not as though every we're saying that Truffaut was was uh you know making the coffee and uh, bringing the cakes in on set you know um there there is a collaborative aspect even to auteurism but it's 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 having that that sort of central hand on on the tiller and and a filmmaker who has a vision but is um, loose enough to allow other people in to affect that vision and to and to develop that vision. And I think that's what Truffaut always meant by auteurism. And I think he, he displays that in his own films. Um, yeah, definitely. And I think it's really important as well because it's not just the notion of author. It's also, it was what was important about the new wave was the filmmaker as an artist yeah that's really important because obviously it's giving you um create like um the freedom of being more creative and more free with your script with what you want to do how you want to film but what's really important about being an artist as much as he's uh, working as a film producer is the collaboration itself you never work alone you work with other people um, and that's something that um, tends to be forgotten a lot, I think. But there isn't just one person making a movie. It's everyone who works on the set. It's um, it's a big collaboration. Yeah, I mean, Truffaut did say that once he cast Anton at that point, when he got Jean-Pierre Lialde in that role, it's it changed. It changed the, the script. It changed the character because he started to respond to to the particulars of that actor playing the role. And it wasn't just it. It, it ceased to become just his experiences and and and, and the script experience. It, it took on a life of, of its own in some ways. Um, the relationship between him and um, Leo was very important, but also there was a lot of trust because. He he didn't give him like complete free reign, but there was enough enough trust there that he let him improvise, um, like during the scene with the psychologist. Um, he, he had the questions, but then all the answers they all came from Leo. Yeah, I mean that that scene particularly, I think, is a real a real snapshot of what he brings to the role throughout the series. He's a very physical actor. Um, and all the way through the series, you see that physicality, almost like a silent comedian kind of thing, which is particularly in like stolen kisses and things like that. It's much more apparent. But in this one, during that psychology scene, his hands are all over the place. He's, he's moving around the table. He's doing. He's always doing something physical with his hands to depict to depict his his role. And that really comes across, and that, it doesn't that doesn't surprise me that that was one of the more improvised sequences. Um, because it, it, you know, it, it it leads on to the rest of the films. It shows it in his acting style. The physicality that you talked about there, I think, um, uh, comes through right up to the final sequence where um, Antoine has been put in this sort of borstal, you know, what we call a borstal-like institution. But then uh, does the equivalent of, of of scenes that we would have seen in, in British new wave films like Loneliness of the Long Distance Runner. Where Truffaut just holds this, or, or or sustains this this sort of long, long, long tracking shot at the end of the movie, signifying that Antoine is is striving for the the freedom that he's clearly always desired in his young life, but we we reach a point where we we just don't know where he's going to end up, uh, and and as as we get to the final shot of the film at the end of that very long take. Although we're talking about 400 Blows as a, a, a brilliant standalone movie, that ending almost invites us to say, well, you know, we, we want more. What's next? 
I remember watching that as uh, I think I, I must have watched that when I was like 17, 18, and I was just getting into film and properly into film, you know, uh, films beyond the ones that are just coming out in the cinema and on video um, and searching out the classics of cinema. And I remember watching that film and being at the point where I was like, I get there's some more going on here. You know, I understand that there's more going on in this movie. And the ending was like one of those wonderful ones where I felt I got it. I felt like, okay, he's running and running and there's nowhere left to run. You know, he's run, but where's he going to go? He's always going to be trapped. And like you say, it invents, it, it invites that sort of like interpretation to it where, I don't know, me, me as an 18-year-old, I thought, well, that is the ending because otherwise it, it, it explaining where he goes from there is 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 kind of like redundant, really, because it's the whole point of the film is that there's nowhere to go. You know, you've run as far as you can and you come up to the sea and then you can't go any further. And then that's kind of like the... I'm, I'm surprised they actually went on and made more uh, now, looking at it. Um, actually, I think that's why the transition between the 400 Bros and Antoine and Collet, I think is really good, just because it didn't pick up right where it stopped. And I think that's really well played because I don't think it would have worked otherwise. Um, but it's uh, and it was really well played as well because obviously when we when Ford Red Bro stop he's just escaped um, the boys' house which I think he describes something in between prison and uh, a mental health institution um, to then find him uh, meet him again in uh, Antoine and Colette um, three four years later in prison again military prison and it's like you feel like oh it's starting all over again. Is he finally gonna be able to escape? Or yeah, absolutely. I mean, short of having a bolt turn up at the end of Four Hundred Blows at the start of a new one, you can you, you you can't touch that ending really. So picking him up four years later is probably the the, the right call. And um, yeah, let's let's move on to Anton and Colette. This the second film. The it's thirty two minute short film that was part of a a bigger feature compendium feature called Love at Twenty. Yeah, and we like, like you say, we see him. We see him in, in prison at the start of that movie. It's an interesting shot. This one, I'm not sure whether when he made this one, he was thinking, "I'm going to keep returning to this character," or not. What What, what do you think? Do you think he thought, "Okay, this is the I'm going to keep returning to Antoine uh, for the rest of my career now, and here's the next film." But it, it did feel like, "Oh, I've got to whack 20, 20 minutes together. I'll just do another one of those." Um, I wouldn't like to speculate on that, Adam. Whether whether it was just, oh, yeah, I've, I've got to do this film, let's let's revive Antoine, or whether it was part of a, a career plan. But for, for a film that's, you know, about half an hour, just a, a little fragment, it's very, very substantial. And I think I think there's as much going on here as there is in any, any of the other films in terms of what we're let into in the development of, of uh, Antoine as a character. I think we, we find out a lot about him in the space of this half hour. Yeah, it certainly continues the sort of like love of him searching for love, I guess. It's, it becomes the theme of the whole series, um, whether that's destructive love or, or, or motherly love or whatever. You know, he's, he's always searching for love in all of these films. And that gets established in this second film fairly Clearly, well, I thought there was other things that 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 were quite interesting. The dynamic of Antoine and Colette, and Colette being like a student, and him being a non-student ex-military, sort of thing, dishonorably discharged. That kind of world clashing against him, and him being the outsider again. I felt continued that theme as well. Um, the depicting of uh, the progression of France at that point, well, of course, the, the 30 glorious years, because we see that's where there was the modernization of um, everything after the Second World War. And I think it, the, the, the two movies, there's that continuation and a slow evolution of the place of the woman as well. Um, so his mom, for example, started working uh, and then college studying for her baccalaureate. That, that was something that was not new, but it was still rare enough that it was surprised that she was studying rather than being at home or working, which is quite interesting because we see this um, evolution through the whole series uh, about the, the place and the role of the woman and how their place changes with Antoine, but also in um, like modern society. 
Mm, yeah, definitely. You definitely see them, particularly in Colette as well. Colette's quite a key character in that respect. Mm. Um, and and yeah, she's she's not interested. She's not interested in, in this movie in Antoine at all. And it's got that sort of like unrequited love about this um, that becomes part of of, of his of his psychological makeup, I guess. I, I think there's there's a a, um, a visual trick that um, that Truffaut uses in uh, Antoine and Colette that really symbolises that uh, that that gulf and that that idea that there's no hope for this relationship. Wanting the title characters are constantly meeting at various concerts and lectures and so on, and you do there's a comic side to that as well. You do often get the sense that. But, he goes because he knows he's going to bump into Colette there. And um, they're often seen sitting in different parts of the audience with an aisle in between them in, in whichever venue they're at. And that, that I think, symbolises this sort of gulf be- between the two. And that's, that's then emphasised later on um, when uh, Antoine moves into a hotel room opposite where Colette lives with her parents. And again, the way Truffaut shoots that from high above the street and uh, showing you the, the, the buildings on either side of the frame and, and focusing on the space between them really works, I think, yeah, it's it's a, it's a very clear um, visual statement of of what, what what this couple are going to be and are. Yeah, he doesn't pick up on it at all until she physically rejects him. Um, even though throughout the whole movie, as Daryl pointed, um, she consciously, continuously put a like physical distance between him and her, and then the one time where. He manages to be physically close to her is either in the apartment of her parents, which is kind of claustrophobic in a way, um, whether it is for him or for her. And then once they finally get together um, in the audience, uh, and then he tries to um, kiss her, and then she rejects him, and that's where he's like, "Oh, oh, okay." There is that realization. Whereas with us. We've got that kind of um, omniscience knowledge where you can tell from the beginning that this is not going to happen and it's just hitting then. Yeah, there's definitely sort of like a um, an arrogance to him to think, just, just to assume that that's, that's what's going to happen all the way through. And then it's, it's literally only at that point then where it's like, oh, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, and that's something that carries on um, afterwards in all the other movie, which is kind of incredible again with the consistency um, of all the characters and the memories and chronology. Yeah, so let's let's move on to Stolen Kisses because this is the one where he's he's constantly running away from the army and and being discharged, uh, dishonorably discharged at the start of the movie. Again, this one this one this one for me tied into the to where I first really recognized the acting style of, of Jean-Pierre Liaud where he that opening sequence where he's released from prison and he goes to the prostitutes and it almost plays like a Jacques Tati film or a silent comedy where his movements are very very silent comedy style and it sets up this is a different tone in some ways to the first two movies uh we've got much more lighter tone this is a comedy romantic comedy potentially and, and we switch from the drama romance drama of the first two things into something slightly different here. Yeah, what do what, what, what people say on Stolen Kisses? I sort of pictures this one as a comedy, really. And then as as we know, look, looking back on the series, as we, we can do from our privileged point of view, we can see that he then he then does different things with the next two films as well, as, as though they're part of a series, but he's also trying to emphasise that, yeah, these, these, are, these can be treated as standalone films. And by making them all in a different style, I'm sort of telling this continuous story, but I want you to be able to appreciate these as, as individual pieces of work as well as, as parts of a whole. I like this film a lot because it's got this sort of blundering from job to job aspect to it. And um, and brings in here is he's able to pay homage to uh, to film noir because the 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 job that we see Antoine doing uh, most of all in this film is as again a pretty hapless one but 
a private detective um, there. So Truffaut can sort of live out all of his bogey fantasies right there. Yeah, he's definitely got that sort of like, everything's going into the pot <laughs> to make this one. We're going to go throw a bit of film noir, a bit of romantic comedy, a bit of broad comedy, a bit of Jack Tatty, a bit of classic French New Wave stuff. We're going to throw it all in, mix it all up and off it goes. And, and, and for, for its benefit, I think it's a really nice... I think it's a really nice instalment in this in this series. I think in this one, it really made me made me realise that most. I mean, less so than the, the, the four hundred blows. Maybe it's because it's a child, and everything that happens to a child is important. You know, it's just one of those one of those. In, in, when you're watching a movie, every every scene that Antoine, a thirteen year old, is involved in is a dramatic scene. Whereas where we get into these later ones now, and it's like. He's, he's, he's a man now. He's going through such circumstances where it's just like he's going through experiences that other people have had. And they're not that big deals. They're just little moments in your life. And you start to see that sort of like looking at the bits, the quiet bits of people's lives that don't normally get shown up in, in, in soap operas or dramas of, of, of other kinds. Truffaut starts to lean towards those little moments that are in between the big moments, I guess, which I really like um, throughout this series. It's it's a celebration of the banal life, the everyday life, um, which is, again, not really celebrated, or not always celebrated in cinema, just because, oh, well, why would you want to go and see that to the cinema? You want to see something grandiose, you want to see something romantic, you want to see something that's really flashy and amazing. So why would you want to go and see someone go and buy his journal or take a cup of coffee with his wife. Is it really important? But yeah, that, that's what part of New Wave was all about, is that celebration of the normal, the everyday. Yeah, um, the real. Yeah, what was real. Um, I do want to apologise because I mixed up the beginning of Stolen Kisses with Colette. So um, I think I mentioned they started in prison when uh, he went to military um, after Antoine and Colette. But it's the, the, the repetition again is interesting though, because Antoine and Colette, it starts with a small cramped apartment, then military jail. It all kind of repeats himself. And that's what I think makes it like a, a comedy, um, in its own way. Because when he tries to approach Christine, he does exactly the same thing that when he did with Colette, which absolutely did not work. And you you see him making friends with his, with her parents, um, especially her dad once again. And he uh, the dad gets him to his first job as well. And you're like you're doing exactly the same mistake. And you you see that, and it's like you you look at him and you're like, has he learned? Has he like he just keeps repeating himself over and over? Yeah, you do you, you do wonder. I mean, as I started watching Stolen Kisses. And and it was I think it was a couple of days between watching uh, Antoine and Colette and Soul and Kisses, and for the first few minutes I just thought, well they got the same parents in, but but they've recast yeah. Colette and they're calling her Christine. It's different. It's like oh no no, it's actually new characters. He's just repeating the same thing over again. And I wonder whether it's a, whether it's a case of Truffaut doing that. Or whether it's a case of thinking, well, no one will have seen the Compendulum movie. And I really like the idea that he befriends the parents. Falling in love with someone is not just about falling in love with that person. It's falling in love with their entire family. And whether you thought, oh, I'll, I'll use that again because it works really well. And then it obviously it becomes a character trait for, for Antoine. I take that as being an Antoine trait, really. I, I think I think we are supposed to think that, uh, yeah, he 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 might never get the girl, but he gets their mum and dad, you know, and uh, um, and and he, he's he, he's he's better at relationships with people's parents than he is with 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 the individuals that he's sort of pursuing. To come back as well to this um, this this idea that you've suggested about. Uh, the, the sort of depiction of banal reality in in this movie, which is is exceptionally well done. Again, I I think that I think that went on to have a later influence. If you combine that with the idea that Antoine is a detective, you you then later see that in in movies like um, um, Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye, in um, Coen Brothers' Big Lebowski. And in um, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice, where where you've got these sort of modern day sort of Humphrey Bogart type figures, but 
they're they're bothered about you know going out and buying a pint of milk or something and 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 this is the seed of that i think in stolen kisses very very influential on on that uh, that those later years of of hollywood sort of neo noir but um I think what um, again the reinforcing the comedic and the banal aspect of it is, I guess uh, around that time is when um, you started having um, spy movies um, and uh, seeing movies about like a private detective, whether they were um, comedy or serious one. And then you see that it's just a person; it's just a man. He's got absolutely no knowledge of what he's doing. He's never been. A, a police officer is not is not a private yeah. detective, and it's just uh, it, it's a bit like you when you're a kid and you see a movie about a private detective and you're like, oh, I'm gonna follow someone, and you're just completely obvious about it. You just completely fail, but you're really trying really hard, but you you're completely failing, and that's what's happening with Antoine as well, being just really terrible at um, following people and um, trying to keep track of them. I think as also just like you're saying during that period, the whole you know Euro spy boom and and your James Bonds, where they these incredibly efficient machines of spying and machines of espionage. And like you say, we get Antoine who just sort of like stumbles out, kicks kicks out of the arm and stumbles out of a of a hotel job into a becoming a private detective, becoming one of those guys. It's uh, it is ridiculous, and, and yeah, lands really well. And one thing that I quite uh, that I found interesting, um, it's a story that mirrors itself in the movie that I found interesting. You obviously have Antoine being kind of like somewhere between a private detective, a spy, and a stalker with what he's done with Christine and uh, befriending her parents, and him following Fabienne Tabar, obviously as um, as per her husband request. Um, and then throughout the movie, you've got this little scene of Christine um, being followed by a man. And um, it's that come to realization that the man is basically doing the same thing that one, Antoine did to Colette and Christine. Uh, but because Antoine is the main character, the lead character, you, you it's, it's not, it doesn't make it okay. But there's a kind of acceptance of like, that's who he is, that's how he is. And then you have this man at the end when he meets up with Christine on the, and rests on the bench. And that man comes to her and speaks to her probably like Antoine Woods. And uh, there is that come to a realization that, oh, that man is mad. The, the, that stranger, that man who was talking, Christine is mad. When you think about it, is acting like Antoine. And it's that kind of the double standard. And again, coming to realization that He's, he's conscious, he's self-conscious about himself. He knows that what he's doing is very similar, but then not wanting to admit it. Yeah. With with that scene coming right at the end of the film, I think that would be a great ending, you know, if, he, if he'd stopped the story there. But, uh, but yeah, we've, we've got two more films to go. Well, I think I think the ending's right. But I think once you get to that, the idea of, of, of a married Antoine, even at the end of Stolen Kisses, feels like, I don't even know how that would play out. You know, I don't, I don't think it'd be a good thing. Uh, and you, you know that in Stolen Kisses, that him being married to Christine is probably not going to work out, even at the end. Um, yeah, again, it's the idea of like, you you see him doing the same thing, but this time Christine is kind of, the, the girl is coming back for him. So you're like, okay, she's interested, but you still see him not changing he's still doing exactly the same thing and you're like okay it worked this time yeah. and yeah it's just that the the, the way he's be he's been behaving with women through his childhood to now you you're already questioning whether that's that relationship or that, that wedding is going to um to last or not um and you haven't even reached the next movie yet yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of weird because we, we talked about this before the podcast started. It's like, he, he's the hero of these films, but he's not a hero in any traditional sense of the word. And even 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 in these early, early installments, maybe, maybe, not, maybe not so much the 400 blows, but definitely in Antoine Collette, he's his own worst enemy in these films. I don't think we're meant to like him, which is, which is, which is an unusual thing for, particularly in Solomon Kisses, where it's supposed to be like a light comedy, romantic comedy type of thing. I think that continues on to Bed and Board, where Antoine and Christine 
in their apartment and they're in, they, they live in this little um, sort of square. It was so brilliant in terms of character study and in terms of a sort of ensemble cast. And um, I, I think it's some of the best work in the series. I, I love those early scenes in the fourth film. Yeah, so we, we we pick him up in bed and board, and he's married to Christine. They're living in a like a, an apartment in this little Parisian square with a bunch of suitably eccentric characters living around them. Uh, with with them being two of those eccentric characters, I guess in some ways they are not the normal characters. You know, he's spraying pe- petals, and like you say, to start the film, he's, he's dyeing flowers different colours and trying to find the perfect colour. You know, what was it about optimum red or something like that? He was trying to find. Yeah, yeah, he wanted to do the, the perfect thread, create the combination for the perfect thread. Yeah, just as a, a ludicrous goal, but it's like, that's Antoine, that's Antoine all over, isn't it? He's trying to get these almost ridiculous goals in his life and he won't stop until he achieves them or fails miserably. Yeah, yeah, it's, his, uh, it's, it's a really good image for his obsession, really, um, to try and reach the goal until he blows it up, just like... He did with his. It's kind of like a sad metaphor for his marriage. Mm. Really, it's, uh, he, he's going to be focused on something for a short amount of time, and then he either gets bored of it, um, just like he moved on from the flower business pretty quickly, or he just blows it all up. Yeah, that's the way it ends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, um, the 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 two the two jobs that he does in this film, the the flower dying and and this business about controlling the these model boats in in this uh, this sort of toy harbour aren't real jobs. Who who does that? You know. So uh, again, there is there is a very definite sense that they are symbolic and they are supposed to represent in life rather than being anything rooted in reality. So in in this in this in this film, I mean, like the last one on this one. Again, we talked about the autobiographical aspects of these films. At this point, Truffaut was, I think, dating the the, the actress who played Christine, Claude Jade. Yeah. So again, he's bringing autobiographical experiences to that character and to his girlfriend um, in in this film as well. Yeah, and he used to be really close to all the actors. Anyway, I think everyone who he worked with. Uh, whether they were really close friends or um, lovers or partners, he got really, really close with them. Which I don't know. I don't know whether it's a good thing or not. But it feels like he's blending even more the barrier between him and Duanel. Then, yeah, I guess. I guess where where does it become exploitative? Um, you know, where, where where are you using your friendships just to just to make a movie? I guess is the. So at which point I'm sure he would say movies are everything. So it doesn't make any difference. I'm having friendships because of movies rather than the other way around. But yeah, no, so bed and board, we, we see him going through the marriage experience again, but we still get that broad, broad comedy as well. We have that whole sequence where he drops Christine off at the, uh, uh, a mysterious place that he's not been told where it is. And it's a choice of a, a dressmaker's, a gynecologist or a I forgot on the third one. It was three three things that it could have been uh, a holiday or something like that, holiday bookings. And uh, he wanders away, going what? what? Then walks into the station. There's a giant billboard with a baby on it, and it's like, oh, I'm having a baby, and runs back. You get that weird broad comedy again, um, slapped into into a, a relatively serious drama about a, a marriage going through the stages of it finishing, I guess, in some ways. And then we get uh, we get him involving in a relationship with a Japanese model student. I don't know what she... We don't, do, we, do we actually find out what she does? Not really. She came with the Japanese delegation that was there to um, negotiate a contract with Antoine's... Well, the company for whom, uh, Antoine's work. But it's never really clear afterwards because... We only see her afterwards when he wants to see her. And I think that highlights again the trait of like Antoine's the main character. It just really becomes very selfish, I think, because when he was in the um, in the marriage with Christine, it had to be part of the whole thing and it doesn't work for him. He, he has to have control um, constantly over things. And 
it, it feels like it's always about the encounter as well with the woman. So it's like whether he creates the encounter and then this one just kind of like falls onto him uh, when he was Kyoko and it's just, you're, you're back uh, again at the uh, the obsession. He finds uh, where she lives uh, and you're like back back toward Antoine basically um, with the trying to find where she lives, um, who she is, uh, wanting to meet her. Putting point those years as being a private detective to good use. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I thought I thought it was interesting that the the scene that really um, that was stood out to me in that in, in the relationship with Kyoko was the scene where she gets rid of her flatmate, and it, and it feels really definitive, like she's actually kicking her out so she can pursue this relationship with Antoine, and it and and that's where you start. To, I mean, maybe maybe that's the mirroring thing. Maybe you start to see more of Antoine in her than initially that you know, initially you see because so ultimately with her you're not really seeing much other than the reflection of what he's putting in I guess his demands were put in it and she just got rid of her flatmate yeah it's um we we only see of her what he wants to see that's the um, I, I think with this one he's even more obsessed obsessed than he's been with the others and it's kind of like a reflection of the general French or European obsession with uh, orientalism and Japanese or Asians uh, women or Asian culture in general where you only see the the part that you're interested in and you're going to focus and obsessed over and over over that part and yeah we we can only see what he wants us to see basically but yeah I mean that, that's that's quite interesting because you literally are you are seeing almost like a stereotype of a Japanese woman until the very end and her her last line is is so un Japanese in that respect, you know, drop dead. You know, you just don't you don't you wouldn't have expected a Japanese woman to say that. And I think that's the point. I think you're, at that point you're seeing the real person and, and, and the real person behind Antoine's vision of, of of what what we're seeing. Yeah, I just wanted to say going back to the the scene where he um, somehow gets a job at this big American company. I think that's that's that small part where you, well, where you and he forgets that um, he's a real person. That that comical idea of like he somehow manages to get a job when he's completely absolutely not suited for it, and you're like, wow, that's never gonna happen in real life, and it definitely won't. So that's that's a small moment of comedy and movie where you forget, or where he wants to forget that this isn't real, that this is real life. Uh, it hasn't been acknowledged, but it the the, the play on um, French people being terrible at English basically is um, it's something that's been treated before, and uh, the 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 conundrum and the miscommunication between him trying to speak English and the other person trying to speak French, uh, which ends up in a complete um, I, w- I want to say fiasco, but it ends well because obviously he gets um, a job there when he clearly shouldn't. Reminds me of um, with the finesse movie called um, La Grande Vadrouille, uh, which was a post World War movie. Um, and there's the iconic scene where um, basically French uh, French people try to help uh, British soldiers escape to um, the free part of France. French people don't speak English very well, and they're just trying to like miscommunicate and uh, communicate and very badly in English and. I feel like it's a small nudge to that. Um, I think it's quite a nice, broad, broad comedy as well. I mean, the the, the, the troubles of being misunderstood and speaking foreign languages is all. Is all I mean, it's a staple of of a lot of British comedy. Definitely that kind of thing. Because we're we're as a nation, we're hopeless at speaking other languages. <laughs> full stop. We we just assume everyone else will speak English. It's fine. You know, it's moving on. So I think I think the comedy coming from being misunderstood. Is, is a classic trope of cinema, isn't it? I think yeah. Truffaut's bringing that to it as well. But then you've got the complete opposite with Kyoko, because then the trouble in communication is that they don't communicate at all. They just stand here and look at each other. Yeah, there's um, there's a great bit of physical comedy where um, uh, uh, Antoine visits Kyoko's apartment and she's prepared a traditional kneeling in front of the low table and Antoine just doesn't know where to position his legs and feet and get comfortable and again you've got that sort of culture clash there 
Yeah, I think I think it's quite an interesting one as well as a, as a depiction of relationships as well. He, you know, you are, in real life, you need to be comfortable with the person that you're with, and he was comfortable with Christine, but broke that off, and then it's moved into another relationship, and there's just constant awkwardness uh, and uncomfortable arrangement between the two of them. Um, it's all it always feels awkward. Even when it's working, it's awkward. Like, like he goes to her flat and the flatmates there, and he's got to kick her out. It's like there's always some sort of awkwardness in his relationship with Kyoko, um, which is obviously representative of his uh, of the the state of the relationship as well. And one of the other things I wanted to draw on the, the sequence where he's going for that job, and we have this sort of like broad comedy. I think just one of the one of the key moments that that, that Truffaut does because it. Antoine is an unlikable character. He can be an unlikable character. He can be likable, but a lot of the time he's an unlikable character. He does that thing where you positions him next to a person who's more unlikable. So the other guy going for the job is, is a prick. So you get that nice, that thing where we where we want Antoine to get the job because we don't want that other guy to get the job. And that's a, ni- a nice way of playing that scene, I thought. I thought it was nice. Um, yeah. Made, put us on Antoine's side in spite of his many shortcomings. Let's move on to Love on the Run because that ends the movie and I was like, end movie cycle. I watched this last night, so it's still fresh in my mind. And 20 minutes in, I thought I wasn't going to like this film. I thought it was kind of like a victory lap. It was going to come around. It's like, oh, we're going to revisit all the great scenes from the other films. And it's like, yay, let's end the movie. And it very quickly, after 20 minutes, became something in its own right as well. And I think I had a lot of fun watching this movie. Yeah, I think with this one, with all the flashbacks at the beginning, you're kind of not, well, I'm guessing that's where you feel like this is going to be the last one. That's the end, because that's him really reminiscing about everything he's done. But it's not just him reminiscing because we see there is the reintroduction of um, Colette in uh, in the movie, and that's how you see the again the genius of the continuity is that she keeps rejecting him, and she reminds me like she she's just like, oh you haven't changed you haven't grown at all you haven't changed at all in all these years and you're like yeah it's been probably about twenty years and he still hasn't changed he still behaves exactly the same and Colette is kind of here to slap him back to reality and kind of show him and explain to him how, why he, and why he went wrong, where he went wrong. And it's kind of like, again, he took, it took him all this time and her telling him for him to figure out where, where he went wrong and what happened. Yeah. And also, also there was a handful of moments in this movie that cut to his core um, all the way through, like the meet the reintroduction of Colette, but also the introduction of uh, introduction slash reintroduction of Mr. Lucien as well, who is his mother's lover, and you get that. All this film, all these films have been have been influenced by that first film, that first uh, his first interactions with love and his motherly love initially, and ultimately he never never thought his mum loved him. And that's that's ultimately it's a, it's quite a trite thing to say now, but in the way that he's done, it's affected everything he's done all the way through these films and all the way through his life. And he finally realizes that in this one. And I think this Colette and then there's this Mr. Lucian, and then the introduction of Sabine as well, as potentially the the, the right person. I mean, but although they even they even leave that open at the end, don't they? Where there's like it might not work, it might work, but let's give it a go, kind of thing. I, I think this uh, this is very much a film about its female characters, and I think the use of flashback even brings Antoine's mother back in as as a major character. She's she's not even a major character in the Four Hundred Blows, but in this film, via flashback and via the um, the return of her lover, who's who's been spied in in that first movie in the series by Antoine out on the streets. She becomes a major character, and, and we even get the revelation that Antoine has never visited her grave. And, uh, and then, then when we do finally see her tomb, it's it's next to that of the woman who inspired uh, Camille, the Dumas character. So uh, he's he's. I, I think the mother becomes a major character through the use of editing, through the use of old clips. She's she's a major character. Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely agree. I think it's um, it, it, 
it brings it home, I guess, <laughs> in, in that respect. Um, yeah, and I think what's really important is that obviously um, for Truffaut and for Duanel uh, in the 400 rows, um, that's kind of relates through, um, uh, again, the psychologist scene is that there is that notion of like um, his mom is a mom. She's supposed to be the mom, but she never really took on a motherly role because um, obviously he's, well, he she had him at out of um marriage which obviously at the time was uh, very fr- still frowned upon um she he even has the the knowledge that she wanted to abort him uh and then spent i think his the first eight years of his life with his nan um and then it's only after she passed away that she kind of had to take him in with her new husband and it's like there is that idea of um his mother only existing as what's supposed to be a mother, but she never took on that role. But with the the the, uh, the apparition of uh, Lucien in the that last movie, it's kind of like telling Antoine that she was more than just this idea of mother that he she should have been. That there was a woman behind it within her own right, someone who was really free, someone who wanted to do so many things and who didn't really get to do that many things, um, that she's just more than what he thought of her. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I agree. I think, I think as Daryl said, it's, it's, it feels like this, this movie is more about the women, and you see the other side. In the previous films, we've seen Antoine's side of these women, and now we're seeing the other side. Like, like we said, you see the mother, that she wasn't a mother, she was all these different things and the things that she didn't do, things that she couldn't achieve in life. And we see other people's opinions of these, uh, other people's visions of what these women are. Um, And we see it with Colette and we see it with Sabine and we see it with uh, Christine as well in this movie, more so than in any of the other films. It's not um, um, a recognition act in the film movie, but that's where you see obviously the evolution of Christine, who um, I think he described in the first, in the previous movie, as very naive, uh, very blonde and kind of easygoing, uh, very um, wise, sage, good listener, where she takes on herself to, well, basically kick him out of the apartment again after, and then she took him back and then she kicked him out again and she was like, no, this time it's definitive. And it's going through the divorce, which um, at the time was also um, a really new, a very new thing. It kind of frowned upon, but a lot more accepted then. And it's her taking control and be like, look, remember, this is the day we divorced. She's taking control over herself. And it's the same with Colette, uh, again, bringing him back to reality and being like, I didn't fancy you at that point. You didn't realize I still don't fancy you. I've got my own life. And also calling him out on his lie um, in his book. Um, as he said, that she, uh, she and her parents were the ones who moved across the street. And that makes you question then, because um, you watch the movie, obviously not one and Colette, and you're like, wait, no, I, did, do I remember that correctly? Um, and then you're like, no, 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 she, like, he is lying. Um, and you see the evolution also of the woman in Colette, um, because she's she had a cameo, I think. Um, in Stolen Kisses. In Stolen Kisses, where you see her and her partner well, a husband and a, a little um, a little girl, a baby. And obviously, in that movie, there is no mention of the husband, no mention of the baby. And it's only at the end where she's like, well, yeah, now I'm a, a lawyer. Um, and I decided to um, to learn and become a lawyer after my uh, baby passed away, well, my daughter passed away. So it's that, uh, it's that transition from Colette who um, was encouraged to go into education and study, like she was studying for her baccalaureate, then settled down. And obviously at that point, it was still kind of popular where it's like if you're married, you, if you didn't need to, then obviously the, the woman would stay and be a stay-at-home mom. And it's like, well, the, the child is gone. There's no more husband. And she's like, she picks herself up and then becomes a lawyer. So it's, again, another nice transition of the role of the woman in society. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think Colette comes across really. I mean, obviously, the actress had a key role in writing the script for this one, but she comes across really well in this movie. The evolution of her character, because in the first movie we've seen her from from Antoine's eyes, and she's kind of like distant and you know always putting him off because he's pursuing her and she's not interested so we see that side of her and here we see a a fully rounded character who's gone through horrible things and and, and, then yeah become made a success of herself i think i think that there's a bit of a sledgehammer scene though the the the, the scene where the oh yeah and uh my baby died and my husband we were divorced from my husband it's a bit of a sledgehammer scene in this movie because it's it's quite a light and frothy movie in many ways and suddenly you get this scene where it's like oh Oof, that's a bit heavy. But I guess you needed to explain it in some way. I think that scene and and the film in general and the use of flashbacks throughout and a lot of other things that go on throughout the movie do suggest that this this was a conscious effort on Truffaut's part to finally wrap things up. I think, you know, we've we've said throughout this talk that um are, are we sure, What or was he ever sure when he was going to finish this series? I think going into Love on the Run, this was a conscious, determined effort to actually wrap things up. And I, I, I think scenes like the one you've mentioned there are, are, all, are all a part of that. Camille mentioned earlier on the ending of Stolen Kisses, absolutely brilliant ending of Stolen Kisses, where this stranger appears that we've never seen before and declares his undying love for Christine. And um, Truffaut sort of does a, a similar trick, sort of repeated whip pan shot of two pairs of lovers kissing, one that we know very well or that we've, be, we've come to know very well throughout the film and, uh, and another that we've only just met. And, and again, I, I think that, that ultimately he's sort of saying, yeah, you, you know, you, you, you may have picked this up right from the start of the first movie, but you know, a, a big part of what this whole series about is, you know, you know, a simple trite message that you've heard a million times, but it's always good to hear. It's a, it's all about the power of love. Uh, Huey Lewis there uh, to end on there for you. Um, I, 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 I loved Love on the Run. I thought it was really uh, possibly my favourite of the series. And I'm not saying it's better than 400 Blows or Soul and Kisses, but I think I enjoyed this one the most. And I think it's entirely because of that opening scene. With them in with the, where they're where they're in bed and he's getting dressed and they have this like weirdly affected dialogue scene, which just completely endeared me to Sabine straight away. Uh, uh, I don't know, I don't know why. I mean, it's always we've had lots of women introduced in this series, but there was something about Sabine in that in that, in that opening scene that I immediately engaged with, uh, and I think it was just a relationship between the two at the start, uh, and maybe she was wearing a Snoopy T-shirt that kind of helps as well um <laughs> but it, it, immediately I, I, i'm on board that, okay it, this is the one then this is the one that he's meant to be with and it wasn't christine and christine even yeah. though that, that whole relationship was there it wasn't colette it wasn't christine it wasn't kyoko it was sabine and even then we don't know whether it's fully going to be sabine but it feels like this is the one right from the start and that and that plays through in the movie as well yeah i think it's because she questioned him but she she doesn't take the no for an answer. She actually stands up from for herself um, from the beginning, always questioning like, oh well, why don't you come and live with me? Why don't you do this? So yeah, I think she she holds him accountable to a certain extent. And yeah, I think she she's a bit more modern. Um, I I have a feeling she I haven't checked the age of the actress, but I feel like she's a little bit younger. And there is the idea where it's like, well, yeah, there is a full transition again, where it's like she grew up with more freedom, maybe, and she's more outspoken than Christine would have been um, because of her education and upbringing. But again, um, when Antoine tells the story about how he found her, it's like you're full on back. It's like, and there we go again, Antoine being Antoine, finding the pictures, sticking up together, and then doing a full-on investigation to find her when you think that's going to end up it's going to end the same way you're like uh, he's fallen back into Antoine being Antoine but I think yeah I don't know I don't know how to explain why um, even though he's repeat, he's got the same pattern you have the feeling that it's not going to be the same with Sabine no I agree I, th- I think this is this was some of those things where what 
the things that people do depicting in a different light can either be incredibly romantic or incredibly stalkerish. And I think that and this series does that in a really good way. You know, like you see the stalker elements in, in Colette and in particularly in, in, in that sequence where he's, where he's constantly, he's always there. Every time she turns around, he's there. You've got the stalker element. But in, but in this one, that element is endearing. It's, it's, there's something about falling in love with a picture and then and, and finding out who that person is and then falling in love with that person. That That's the romantic comedy elements rather than the psycho stalker elements, I guess. Just that little shift of perspective. Um, and, and I think, yeah, like you say, I think it's like, you don't know why it's different, but it is different. I agree with you. A, 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 a film that's very deceptive when when you start out watching it um, and and see just how many clips and flashbacks are being used from previous films, you do sort of wonder where he's going with it, and then suddenly it all makes sense and it all clicks into place. And I think it rounds off the series beautifully. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. Um, I did Google. I did Google the actress. Uh, Dorith, uh, who who is like a child kids entertainer and singer, yeah. massive. I mean, yeah, I, I, I had no clue whatsoever. <laughs> That's like so bizarre. Yeah, yeah. I was watching the movie and I just couldn't put a name on her face. I was like, I've seen her before, and yeah, she was really really big in the seventies, um, eighties. Um, Dorothy, yeah, she did so many things because that was the age of entertainment with movies, singing, and that's where you would find a lot of. Uh, Actors and actresses will be having a white panel of um, different skills, and uh, yeah, she um, she started in a child program, I think. Um, for for the, for the whole movie, I was just really obsessed. I was like, I know her, I've seen her, and I just, it's only after when I checked the cast that I was like, oh, okay, that makes that makes complete sense. Yeah, it's uh, it's Dorothy, and uh, that's why it's even more funny when she's working in the in the vinyl store. It's all in relation to music. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a weird thing as well. It's like, because she didn't do much acting, which is a real shame because she's great in this. And yeah, obviously her, her, her singing career and uh, presenting and TV show career took off more than her, than her acting career, which is, a, which is a shame in some ways. Cool, lovely. Well, thank you very much uh, for joining us. Thank you, Camille. Thank you for inviting me. It was really nice to um, discuss about the um, discuss the Duanel series and Truffle with you. So I, I, I had a great time. Thank you, Daryl. Yeah, thanks, Adam. It's been really good. Cool, and we will be back in another couple of weeks. Please check out our Facebook page, and uh, if you so desire, sign up to our Patreon. Uh, other than that, we will join you again in two weeks' time. Take care.